Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 24 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 5th of June. And Leon, what's on the slate for this week? Well, Gary, we've got a fantastic interview with Anthony Woodward. He's the CEO of Bulletproof. And he's going to be talking to us all about technology solutions for business. Tell you what, if you're not into technology as a business person, you're nowhere these days. That's right. So it's worth listening to him and getting his insight. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Eslake. And we're going to talk about the falling business confidence. It looks like the budget hasn't done anything to fix it, neither has the low interest rate. No, and consumer confidence is down in the pits as well. So first of all, let's talk to Anthony Woodward. Anthony Woodward, we've had some spectacular growth of Bulletproof. Uh, your revenues are up 46%. Uh, you, uh, you've doubled your headcount from 52 to 105. What's going on with Bulletproof? How do you account for this? Uh, thanks, Leon. Um, we, uh, we're actually riding a bit of a wave in the market at the moment, um, which is to do with the take-up of cloud services in Australian businesses. Um, and while the market um, does report that it's growing at about 25 to 30%, we're really investing heavily in that growth curve, which is why we're seeing that sort of headline revenue growth numbers. Now, look, you've been in, the, in this business for, what, 15, 14, 15 years nearly, Back then the word cloud was uh, pretty well confined to engineers and people like that. Where the growth rate, what were you doing early on and you know, where did the waves start to really hit the board? We began the company, uh, myself and a couple of the co-founders, we had previously been in the dial-up game. So if you cast your mind back to the mid-1990s, um, we actually ran a dial-up service provider called Zip, which was eventually sold to Pacific Internet. And towards the end of um, that business, before we sold it, we started to provide quite a lot of services to smaller medium businesses who really wanted to leverage the internet for their business. And what we found fairly quickly was that the technologies were there, but the know-how of how to put them together wasn't. And that really led us to realize that there was a, a gap in the market for a managed service around internet technologies for business, especially aimed at uh, small and medium businesses. So that was the genesis for Bulletproof um, and we leveraged that to grow a, a hosting service which was highly internally redundant but simply simple for customers to use. So it was a high-end shared hosting service um, which customers really enjoyed and then fairly early on in the piece we started to uh, get demand from uh, larger organizations that wanted their own dedicated hosting infrastructure for their websites and transactional sites and things like that where they needed to reach their customers. And so that sort of set us on that growth path. So we grew um, fairly slowly, but over time through to that sort of mid-2000s mark. And then in mid-2000s, we decided we really wanted to focus hard on this dedicated hosting part of our business. And luckily for us, a little company called VMware had been uh, experimenting with and had now released into prime time a technology called virtualization, which is really a, a cornerstone of, of modern day cloud. And it was even then, still before the term cloud had really taken off. You've recently acquired a PantherCore, which is a professional services firm. What do they bring to the table? So a lot of our customers um, have, we've worked with them to move some of their initial web-facing assets from either their own data centers or from outsourced data centers onto a cloud platform. But they're now 
now saying that they'd like us to help them move other parts of their applications into the cloud. And that requires um, a deep consulting cycle, quite a bit of planning and obviously architecture design, implementation and importantly, automation Uh, once you get those applications into the cloud. And so uh, the Panthercorp guys bring skill in all those areas into the business, um, which sort of fills that gap for us, but also means that we can have the cloud conversation with our customers and with prospective customers earlier than they would traditionally have that conversation with a managed service provider. So how, how much and what type of business would an SMB bring to you? I mean, would it be everything from payroll to his his balance sheet and logistics, this sort of thing? So going back to that sort of mid-2000s turn of event for us, we we launched a dedicated hosting service aimed at SMB then, but quite quickly we found that mid-market and then over time, especially with the cloud services, it's actually more business unit enterprise that we've been engaging with. And yes, they are initially they do focus on what they call consumer or the internet-facing component of their application workload because that's a relatively easy thing to outsource, but then it moves on to ERP, logistics, CRM, all of those components that they use within their business, and those are the areas where they need help migrating those applications across. So you you provide the highway and they provide the trucks, roughly speaking. <laughs> That's right, and uh, and I guess what we should say is to be to be accurate and l- looking at those um, year on year growth figures, you'll see that a lot of that growth is off the back of Amazon Web Services cloud platform, which we use to deploy customers onto the cloud, and then we provide um, managed services around that platform. So if you like, we make sure that the highway is in good shape and working and actually delivering what customers want, um, so that they can send their trucks down them. What's your projection for cloud adoption among Australian businesses? Well, actually, we lean on some data that's, that was actually in our slide deck there that Frost and Sullivan published, uh, and that said that while the cloud services market was about $1.2 billion in 2013, they could see it reaching about $4.5 billion by 2018, which is a roughly 30% compound annual growth rate over the next five years. And so that's where we see, and that's certainly what we've seen in our business has been, you know, very rapid take up and even some in the terms of customer numbers, but also even within those customers, starting out with one workload and then moving on, bringing another few and another few. And that, that is very much the trend that we're seeing. Has mobility, the, the burgeoning mobility thing, changed you? Has it made it more difficult or better? We think that uh, mobility is actually the counterpane to cloud services from an application perspective because a lot of uh, applications obviously now have to consider mobility as they are deployed and written and designed, but at the same time they can be housed and hosted in the cloud so that they truly are reachable by a mobile workforce. So it's actually a bit of a driver for cloud take-up in some cases that we've seen. And has it made any any greater difficulty for you? Um, no, because we we don't. Um, I guess we don't focus on building the application itself. We really focus on the infrastructure that the application sits on. But one thing that's probably um, key is for some of our customers, they may have very what we call peaky workloads. So that's a situation where you have um, a, a customer might say something, and then they will get a lot of inbound inquiry to their website very quickly. 
and mobility means that that's more likely to happen because in the old days someone would have to be sitting at their computer to actually go and hit a website. Now it's trivially easy to do it from a smart tablet or phone wherever they are. So those web-bound um, waves or peaks in demand can actually be bigger and more frequent. So in, if anything, that kind of architecture and design has to go into developing the infrastructure that these applications sit on so that they can cope with that kind of workload very quickly. And with that, with that sort of market, you would have to offer a 24-7 service, wouldn't you? Absolutely, yes, and we, and we do that, and we do it through um, a couple of different methods, but one of the things that we have been building out over the last 18 months is our follow-the-sun support capability. So we have engineers on three continents now in, in um, South Africa, in the US, and in Australia. So we're able to, to have engineers um, in their day at any time in, in the 24-hour cycle um, working on, on customer issues. So what sort of traffic would you get, say, uh, somebody shoves up on his website to uh, get a ticket to the Royal Ballet or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what sort of peak load are you talking about? I don't have numbers specifically around ballet, uh, but I do know that um, at the end of uh, a campaign, we, we host uh, the website uh, Movember. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yes. the yes. moustache-growing charity. Yeah. And I, I know that a, a few years ago a, um, a tweet was sent by Stephen Fry at the end of the campaign on 29th of November um, and that resulted in a, about a half a million additional hits in, the, in a five minute period to the website because uh, he has about three million followers on Twitter yeah. and so that, that's an example of getting a very peaky workload that's um, and having to deal with it quickly. Yeah, that's quite a load, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Amazon Web Services, what was the decision to move to them? In uh, probably at about the same time we launched our own cloud platform based on VMware, um, Amazon were launching their service in the US. But in the early days, it was very much um, aimed at developers. You pretty much had to write your application around their platform to make the best use of it because one of its uh, features, if you could call it that, was that if the server that your virtual machine was running on rebooted, it lost all your data and you had to start again. So that's fine for some applications, obviously, but that didn't suit most people. But over time, obviously, they have continued to work on that and it's actually a very sophisticated platform now and it's widely regarded as the global leader. And we realised that at some point in time it would make more sense for us to add our managed service value to an external public cloud platform rather than just continue to build out our own. Um, and obviously the price point of that compute and storage capacity compared with what anybody can build themselves is, is compelling for a lot of customers, as is the wide range of features, because there are hundreds of different features and, and functions that you can tap into in the AWS cloud, which it's getting in increasingly difficult to build that into your own cloud platform. Anthony Woodward, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Well, we're still in the technology development area. I noticed a piece in the paper this morning about robots in American hospitals that have replaced nurses in the sense of they deliver the drugs to the ward, and uh, I don't know what the orderlies are going to do. Well, there's a, there's a view that the orderlies would be doing other things, uh, but it's the same in retail as well. To have robots handling your inventory and orders makes a lot of sense. Okay, and now Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, the budget uh, 
tax breaks for small business and the low interest rates seem to have done nothing for business confidence. Uh, CapEx has crashed and uh, uh, the latest uh, Dun & Bradstreet poll shows that businesses are not that optimistic about the future. What's your view? I think it's too early to tell what the impact of the measures in the budget are likely to be. The most important survey of business confidence, the National Australia Bank's monthly business survey, hasn't come out yet for the period since the budget at the time that we're speaking and the very bad capital expenditure figures released towards the end of May by the Bureau of Statistics reflect surveys that were done in early April uh, after which uh, that was before the Reserve Bank's May rate cut as well. So it's too early to assess the impact of those. However, I would say it is going to be difficult to reverse the weakness in business investment anytime soon and that's because as the IMF has documented when looking at this, it's a global phenomenon, not one that is unique to Australia, and it reflects the difficulty that businesses in most advanced economies, not just Australia, are having identifying where the demand for their product is going to come from, such that would warrant them taking the risks associated with significant increases in capital expenditure. And as I say, that's a global phenomenon, not just a purely Australian one. In Australia, it's been to some extent masked by the mining investment boom that peaked in the second half of 2012, but which is now only just beginning to fall away sharply as projects that have been under construction for a long time have been completed and nothing new is coming on. What's the outlook then? Well, I think the outlook is for further declines in business investment in the 2015-16 financial year at least, as mining investment falls by at least 30%, which was always going to happen at some point, and more disappointingly, the hoped-for revival in investment by other sectors of the economy, in particular the services sector, isn't happening with the speed that the government and the Reserve Bank would have hoped. And although the Reserve Bank has resumed cutting interest rates, uh, last year when they were on hold, they acknowledged that there's only a limited amount that lower interest rates can actually do to foster business investment. Glenn Stevens said on more than one occasion he can lead the horse, that is business, to the water of lower interest rates but can't force business to drink it. Uh, what's really lacking is confidence or as economists sometimes say, echoing the famous words of Maynard Keynes, the animal spirits of entrepreneurs are still somewhat dormant at the moment. What would be required to lift those animal spirits? Well, I think the first thing is is simply clearer evidence of a revival in demand from either households or governments. And that's the nub of the problem that around the world, or at least around the advanced world, businesses know that households are carrying very heavy levels of debt and are thus reluctant to borrow to fund increased spending in the way that they did for 20 years before the onset of the financial crisis. They can also see that in most Western countries, governments are also heavily burdened with debt and are trying to reduce spending and deficits rather than increase them. So they find it difficult to see where export, where demand are coming from. They can also sense that emerging markets are slowing and that therefore the rate of growth in demand for exports from emerging markets is also not looking as bright as it has done for most of the last two decades. And more than anything else, that's probably uh, the main reason for the weakness in business investment around 
around the advanced world as well as in Australia. There are a couple of other factors that are worth noting as well. Uh, there's certainly been an increase in regulation since the financial crisis and outside of the financial services sector itself in many other areas of economic activity as well, which is not a tonic for business confidence. And in some countries, including Australia, there's arguably been uh, an adverse impact on confidence from developments in the political system as well. So none of those things have helped and it's therefore not entirely surprising that many business executives are choosing to hand cash back to shareholders if they have it or simply to sit on their hands if they're a smaller business. Well, going from what you're saying, this could take years till we see business confidence returning. Uh, It could do, and that's one of the reasons why what's now a fairly extensive body of academic research says that the recoveries that follow financial crises are almost always weaker and more protracted than recoveries that follow garden variety recessions that have been induced by excessively high interest rates, as most of Australia's previous recessions had actually been. And obviously it would be helpful if the political environment was more conducive to an improvement in business confidence, but it isn't. As I say, it does remain to be seen what impact the measures in the budget will have on business confidence and businesses willing to invest. I don't think the cut in the company tax rate for small businesses will make a great deal of difference because on the latest available figures, almost two-thirds of companies with turnovers of less than two million, who in theory are eligible for this tax cut, are neither profitable nor taxable. And if you're not making taxable profits, a tax cut isn't much good for you. The $1,000 discount for tax payable by unincorporated businesses is probably too small to make those businesses do anything that they weren't otherwise thinking of doing. And while I do readily acknowledge that the instant tax write-off for purchases of assets of up to $20,000 by businesses with a turnover of less than $2 million will prompt them to buy more of those assets. I don't doubt that at all. That scheme's been very well received. The problem is that much of the increase in asset purchases that that measure is likely to stimulate will be purchases of imported goods. So the net benefit for the economy will be very small. And of course, the other reality is that for all the romanticism to which coalition governments in particular are prone about small business, though the Labor Party is not exempt from it either, the fact is that they actually account for a fairly small share of businesses investment and big businesses don't get this benefit. You would see it having a very minimal effect on the economy. I think it will have a fairly limited impact. I don't doubt that it will boost spending uh, on assets that qualify by businesses that are eligible for this concession. But as I say, most of the increased spending they might undertake will be on imported goods rather than domestically produced ones. And precisely because larger businesses who account for most of the investment and who incidentally have accounted for most of the increase in private sector employment over the last five years as well, are not eligible for these benefits, either the cut in the company tax rate or the instant asset write-offs, it's obviously not going to do anything to stimulate increased business investment by them. When do you expect it will return, the animal spirits would return? That's hard to say. I think the fall in the currency, which uh, I agree with the Reserve Bank here, has further to run, even though it's taken frustratingly long for the currency to fall back to levels more consistent with where its underlying fundamentals are. But I think the ongoing decline in the 
exchange rate will help. Uh, if we were to get a more stable political environment, that would also help. If the US economy starts returning to more normal conditions, for which the best evidence would be that the Federal Reserve is willing to start returning interest rates to more normal levels. I think that would be a fill-up for confidence as well, even if it might not well be, be well received initially by the stock market. And eventually, that's going to lead to an improvement in the Australian business environment as well. And the other thing that would help, although I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, would be if governments used their balance sheets to fund increased infrastructure spending. I said before that in most advanced economies, one of the things that's restraining business investment is the fact that they can see that both households and governments have lots of debt and are in no position to lift their spending. But of course, here in Australia, governments don't have a lot of debt. They could undertake worthwhile, soundly based infrastructure projects that would absorb the labour that's now being shed as the mining investment boom winds down, which would open up opportunities for new businesses to profitably invest if the infrastructure investment was sensibly located and rationally priced. But that's not something that governments want to do these days. And even in New South Wales, where the government is undertaking increased infrastructure investment, it's only doing so to the extent that it can fund it by asset sales. No government in Australia, irrespective of its political complexion, appears to have much appetite for borrowing, even at what are close to the lowest interest rates in 60 or 70 years, to fund worthwhile infrastructure spending projects. If they did, I think that would add a fill-up to business confidence, but unfortunately I don't think it's on any government agenda. Which means this could, we could be seeing some few years till we see any pick-up in confidence. Uh, I think that's that's a distinct possibility, and I think it gels with the outlook that most forecasters have for growth remaining below trend for some time. Now, the one fortunate thing that's happening is that while growth in real GDP and other broad aggregates remains below trend, we are seeing a rotation away from the most capital-intensive form of economic activity, namely mining, to much more labour-intensive forms of economic activity like dwelling construction and tourism. So it is possible that despite overall growth remaining below trend, the unemployment rate could at least stop going up and may edge down. That would also be helpful at the margin for business confidence, but I don't think there are any silver bullets here that will lead to a dramatic increase in business confidence anytime soon. So, Leslie, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. So what do you think of that lot, uh, Leon? Well, as he said, it's, it's early days yet. We're still to see what impact the budget's going to have, but it doesn't look good. No, it does not. And, of course, the whole world is pretty fragile. I mean, there's the Greek thing, and it's a bit like that uh, West Virginia miserable song called Another Day Older and Deeper and Dead. Absolutely. 16, 16 tonnes. That's right. <laughs> they need more than 16 tonnes. What have they got? $300 billion worth of debt? Euros, I mean. The Greeks are in serious debt. The big news is that Greece's international creditors have started preparing the text of a bailout deal to present to the Athens government in a sign that lenders are running out of patience after months of stalled talks. Officials from the European institutions and the International Monetary Fund have sent a draft text on the economic overhauls that Greece needs to implement to unlock bailout financing to a meeting in Berlin of key European leaders. And leaders include German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French President Francois Hollande, IMF Head Christine Lagarde, and European Central Bank President Mauro Draghi. They're involved in talks about making a so-called final offer to Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. After balking at 
accepting painful tight belt tightening measures after months of fruitless talk, Cyprus now appears likely to be offered a draft agreement that presents him with a stark dilemma. Rejecting it could plunge Greece into default, capital controls and a potential exit from the euro. Accepting it could split his left-wing Syriza party, which won election in January and promised to stop and reverse austerity. And Greece's creditors have said not enough progress has been made in talks so far. There are serious big differences on thorny issues like pension and labour market overhauls, as well as the size of the country's primary budget surpluses over the next few years. And so this agreement aims at setting out what reforms Athens need to agree to in order to access its next slice of financial aid of up to 7.2 billion euro, which is about 10.3 Aussie, to avoid defaulting on its debt. So Greece is under pressure to agree to the creditors' policy because it's so dangerously low on cash. It's got enough cash left to repay the 300 million euro loan to the International Monetary Fund on June the 5th, but probably won't have enough to cover the next three payments, which are due in mid-June. I, I think the Northern European view in Germany and France and Britain is that uh, this is just another stage and, and that it'll all have to be written off and Greece will leave the uh, leave the union i don't know because uh, today francois hollande was telling people that an agreement is coming soon within days he said possibly even hours so let's just wait and see can you see greek uh, civil servants agreeing to work till 70 i i think this is going to be a big big issue or maybe somebody paying a few bob tax now the other big story is that china's official pmi the bellwether of large industrial firms picked up modestly to 50.2 may that's up from 50.1 the previous month in the meantime, the HSBC China Flash PMI, representing a group of private sector and small and medium enterprises, also edged up to 49.1. That's up from 48.9. But they're not. it's not spectacular growth, Gary. No, it's not. Um, no more indeed than, uh, than our GDP growth. That's right. And we'll get to that later. But the other big story, Gary, is that Malaysia Airlines has gone bust. Uh, the new company's CEO, Christopher Muller, told a press conference that the airline is, in his words, technically bankrupt. And as a result, it's cutting 6,000 of its 20 thousand staff with the rest of redeploying the new company that will take over the airline's legacy business. Now, the airline's been kept on a lifeline of cash from its owner, the Malaysian government's sovereign wealth fund, Kazana, following last year's disasters, which was, of course, Flight 370 with 239 people aboard from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, which vanished without trace in March 2014, and Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, which was shot down over rebel-held eastern Ukraine on July 17, killing 298 passengers and crew. And both disasters had damaged the airline's brand irreparably. Now, Muller is a former CEO of Ireland's Aer Lingus, and he said the airline's declining performance started long before those tragic events. He said they were in big trouble before. And he said the restructure could cut costs by 20%, could see it re-emerging as Southeast Asia's leading airline, but it's not going to be easy because there's so much competition around. And Malaysia Airlines will announce its rebranding on September the 1st. The issue, Gary, I think, is that with the search for Flight 370 still underway, the question is whether the airline needs a new name or logo. And even that is just window dressing because they're, they're getting chewed at by, uh, say, Singapore Airlines and, and the major lines and also undercut by all the budget. So they're in, in a bind. That's right. Well, that was one of the big business stories for the week. Now, the budget's package for small business, which includes tax breaks and the RBA's rate cuts, have failed to revive business confidence, according to the latest Dun & Bradstreet Business Expectations Survey. This was something we discussed with Saul Leslake. And the index plummeted to 13.4 points. That's down from 20 20- 20.7 points. So from 20.7, 13.4. 
points to 13.4 in one quarter and 19.5 points at the same time last year. The survey also found that business performance actuals in sales, profits, employment and investment also fell. That dropped from 15.5 points in the fourth quarter of 2014 to 8.1 in 2015 and that's quite severe they say uh, the business 24 percent say that weak demand for their products and services is their biggest barrier to growth in the coming year and 38 percent nominated consumer confidence as the issue which will most influence their operations in the third quarter of the year now the services sector in australia contracted for a second straight month in may despite a business friendly federal budget and interest rate cut during the month and the australian industry group performance of manufacturing index fell 0.1 points to 49.6 in the month. Now, anything above 15, 50 indicates expansion. Anything below is contraction, so it's still contracting. And it's a different story with consumer confidence. The latest ANZ Roy Morgan weekly index on consumer confidence level show it was flat at 113.5 points, but it's still 11% higher than a year ago, but it's still flat. And very tender. Now, ABS data showed the nation's current account deficit for the quarter widened, a seasonally adjusted better than expected 5% to $10.74 billion. The GDP report came in well above expectations. Over the quarter, the economy grew by 0.9%, leaving the annual rate of growth at 2.3%. But it's not all good news, Gary, because growth was boosted by contributions from exports and inventories. And if we strip them out, if we take out stock and exports, domestic demand was absolutely flat. Well, you know, real wages, in fact, have dropped in Australia and people are much more cautious and have to be. Now, Joe Hockey yesterday was talking, he he was thrilled with the numbers. He said they were a terrific set of numbers. And he said anyone who said Australia was heading towards recession was a clown. The stock market fell to its lowest level since January. Joe Hockey, the salesman, not Joe Hockey, the treasurer, I think. So the market was unimpressed. I mean, the reality, what these figures are saying, I mean, if it's 2.3%, it has to grow at 3 to 3.25%, which we've endured for the last few years, to make any indent in unemployment. Figures like 2.3% mean we're going to have high unemployment until next year. And in fact, the OECD came out and said Australia's GDP will be 2.3% for this year and around 3% next year. So the OECD said the global situation was that they would globally would have growth of 3% and 3.8% next year. So everything will pick up in 2016, according to the OECD. But there's still got to be a lot more push to get innovation moving, get get in out of where we've been with coal and, and iron ore and whatnot, and get into the knowledge economy better than we are. That's right. Other, other data came from the ABS. Building approvals fell back from record high levels. Data showed the number of buildings approved fell a seasonal adjusted 4.4% to 18,715 in April. Company gross operating profits rose, but only 0.2%, according to the ABS. Yes. Only zero point. I mean, that's virtually flat, Gary. Now, on the other hand, Australia's um, manufacturing sector has expanded for the first time in six months with the lower Australian dollar. The Australian Industry Group's performance of manufacturing index lifted 4.3 points to 52.3. And so now it's sitting above 50 points. And as a result of all this mixed data, the RBA has kept the base rate unchanged at 2%. At the same time, Australia's 1.86 million lowest paid workers will get a $16 a week pay rise following a 25 percent increase to the minimum wage. One of the most fascinating soap operas going on, of course, is with what's happening with Gina Reinhardt. And John Hancock plans to remove Gina as the director of the family's mining company, Hancock Prospecting. 
And in an interview with the Australian Financial Review this week, Hancock said a Supreme Court judgment last week for Mrs. Reinhardt's two eldest children, Mr. Hancock and Bianca Reinhardt, to strip control of the $4 billion plus family trust away from their mother, raised questions about Australia's richest person, whether Australia's richest person should continue in her role at the family company, where she's the largest stakeholder. Now, the trust holds 23.4% of Hancock prospecting on behalf of Reinhardt's four children, and it was established by Reinhardt's father, the late Lang Hancock. Yep, and all we can see of this is that uh, at least a fair amount of Gina's money is going to go to the legal eagles as the court cases will continue. That's right. Now, the other fascinating news story was that China's Wanda Cinema Line Corps has announced it's buying Australian Hoyt's Cinemas and expanding an entertainment empire controlled by billionaire Wang Zhenlin. Wanda Cinema didn't disclose how much it would pay for Hoyts in a regulatory filing on Tuesday, but according to a report by Variety, the deal could be worth as much as 750 million US. Now, Wanda Cinema is a unit of Dalin Wanda Group, which also owns North American cinema chain AMC after a 2012 takeover. It's China's largest private sector cinema operator with over 150 multiplexes in 80 cities. And the Beijing-based company, controlled by Chinese billionaire Wang Zhenlin, branched out into film production, theme parks, print media and art investment in recent years. Now, you've got to remember back in December, Hoyts, which includes a network of DVD and Blu-ray rental machines in the Val Morgan Advertising Group, was sold to an investment company founded by Chinese billionaire Sun Shizhang. He knows Wang Zhenlin. He's a good friend of his. It's a great story, though. Hoyts, now in the control of the Chinese. The other big story, the final story for the week, was um, Treasury Secretary John Fraser saying, as he was telling the Senate Estimates Committee, that Sydney is unequivocally in a house price bubble as a high-end parts of Melbourne, adding to the risk that people are over-investing in property. And in one of the strongest official warnings about the danger of surging property prices, Fraser said recent growth in popularity of renovation shows is, is a sign, re- renovation reality shows like The Block is a sign that something is amiss. And he, th- he said he laments the highly unfortunate impact of rising prices on younger people trying to enter the market, and he cautioned that investors might be taking on too much risk. Well, there's always a few Chinese billionaires that come in and buy um, mansions. I mean, like Altona in Sydney went for $52 million, just one of many. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. That's terrific. And uh, we'll be back next week. So the next week we're talking to Hugh Davies from McFarlane Lane. That's an outplacement company. It's for into career transitions for executives who have lost their jobs. And so we're going to have a fascinating chat to him. Yep, that's a really, really interesting um, angle on what's going on in the upper corporate levels. That's right. And so in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.